You're now listening to episode 74 of the Real Estate CPA Podcast. Your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here, we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hi, everyone, and thanks for tuning in. Brandon Hall and Tom Costelli here today with Mark and Andrew Pierce. Mark is an attorney with over 30 years of experience in various aspects of tax planning and asset protection, and Andrew is a paralegal that works for the firm who doesn't sell Wyoming LLCs because he's in Wyoming, but is in Wyoming for the LLCs. In this episode, we discuss entity structuring and asset protection for rental property owners, including the benefits of using Wyoming LLCs as a holding company, do series LLCs always make sense, Wyoming trusts, and so much more in this episode. It's going to be a great one. Before we jump right into today's episode, I want to let everybody know that the Real Estate CPA will be putting on special virtual workshops in November and December of this year, where we will discuss year-end tax tips for the first 15 to 20 minutes and then open up the room for questions. This is the perfect opportunity to get answers to your last-minute tax questions before the year ends. Seats will be limited, and you can sign up by visiting www.therealestatecpa.com backslash virtual dash workshops or by following the link in the show notes below. Mark Andrew, thanks for taking the time to come on the show today. Can you give our listeners a little information on your background and what you're up to today? Yeah, I'd be, I'd be delighted. Uh, my name is Mark Pierce. I'm an attorney who's licensed in a couple different states, including Wyoming and Colorado. Um, I've been a practicing attorney since 1983. My life has been focused around uh, estate administration. And in this particular juncture of my life, it uh, almost concentrates primarily on asset protection in the form of LLCs and domestic asset protection trusts. Uh, Wyoming is the preeminent jurisdiction for the formation of LLCs in the United States and leads the United States in the legislation pertaining to LLCs, having been the, I believe, the first state to adopt the statute allowing for LLCs. I'm also a CPA, and I have worked for many years with accountants in the formulation of asset protection strategies. Okay, now I'm Andrew Pierce. Uh, my background, I have degrees in mathematics and philosophy with a lesser concentration in economics. I focused on business development down in the Caribbean for about three or four years after graduation. After that, I was brought on to build a website for this Wyoming law firm. It was originally just going to be a 10-page website, essentially get something up. But the more that I looked at the Wyoming laws, I realized how broadly they would appeal with the LLC and trust laws, so I decided to come on full-time and make it my focus to essentially uh, be an evangelical for Wyoming LLCs and the benefits that the state offers. Awesome, awesome. Well, we thank you again for taking the time today to come on. And we have a lot of clients that purchase investment in real estate, or in other words, you know, rental properties, and, and they do it as individual investors. And for this group of people, what type of uh, asset or what type of entity structure would you generally recommend? Um, generally, we're going to recommend, uh, certainly never hold it in your personal name. Uh, that's both because it makes it much easier for your creditors to find. And then also, God forbid, you ever have an accident at the property because real estate does tend to be a risky asset. It makes it much easier to go from one property to the other and seize them. So we recommend at the very least holding each property in its own LLC 
And then generally for simplicity and asset protection, you'll have a holding company at the top, which is generally going to be domiciled in Wyoming. And then optionally, depending on the states you're operating in and what their laws are, you can put land trusts in there at the lower level. That'll provide you a little bit of privacy. And then, for example, in a state like Florida, where you have a transfer tax, uh, you can avoid the transfer taxes later on if you do ever want to move it to a different entity or a different person. And then we recommend the LLC over the corporation because the LLCs, well, they have better asset protection in Wyoming. They're also much easier to manage day to day. And then if you do want corporate taxation, you can tax an LLC as a corporation. So in very few circumstances, is the corporation actually better for a client than an LLC? I had a couple of things that I wanted to add to that. I think that the Wyoming statute is a uh, much better statute than what you're going to find throughout much of the remaining of the United States because they recognize single-member LLCs. They recognize the efficacy of those LLCs. So that if you have an operating LLC that's owned by a holding company, that operating LLC is a single-member LLC and it has efficacy under Wyoming law. The additional factor is, you know, with these land trusts and also with LLCs is you can do it. Uh, it's not a matter of public record as to who owns those shares or who has that beneficial ownership interest in those properties. So you can hold the beneficial interest in the property uh, separate and apart or without disclosing the individual owner's names of the property other than to the IRS or the banks or whomever it is that you want to open accounts with. So it's not a matter of public record. So it makes it much more difficult to track you down in those things and provides the degree of anonymity and privacy that uh, most Americans seek. And land trusts also operate to do that in addition to covering uh, the cost and expense of transfers much more readily, particularly in places like Florida where the land transfer taxes are fairly substantial. Excellent. We appreciate that. So I live in North Carolina. Why would I use a Wyoming LLC over a North Carolina LLC if I had like North Carolina investments? Well, generally, the reason you're going to do that is because Wyoming has the most favorable laws at the end of the day. But it's going to come down to how much complexity do you want to build into your structure. Um, You'll certainly have the holding company in Wyoming because of the charging order protection, single-member LLC protection, and the privacy. Uh, The question becomes on those subsidiary or children LLCs that are going to own the property. Do you put those in Wyoming or do you put them in the Carolinas with you? Uh, You do have the option in pretty much every state other than California, which won't allow you to own real estate with an out-of-state entity. But you can put those individual properties in Carolina into those Wyoming LLCs as children. But then at that point, you either need a third-party property manager who will be doing business for you and dealing with the tenants, or you then need a Carolina LLC that will be your property manager. You can own and control that LLC, but it's what's actually doing business there in the state. So you end up having essentially an extra LLC that's doing the property management. Not everyone wants to do that at the end of the day. They want to manage it through the LLC that owns the property. And in that case, you'd go with the Carolina LLC. Uh, So it's how much separation do you want? How many LLCs do you want? So that makes a lot of sense. Now, we've seen a lot of folks recommend like Delaware LLCs or Nevada LLCs. Is there ever like, like, why Wyoming over Delaware or Nevada? Oh, you know, there's a couple of reasons to just jump right off the page. I mean, first of all, cost and expense of formation and maintenance. The maintenance of the Wyoming LLC, formation of the Wyoming LLC is $102 if you do it by credit card, 100 bucks if you do it by check. And then every year when you file your annual report, it's a $50 filing fee. You can do it all electronically. It's pretty simple and straightforward. And the registered agent fees are substantially less than what you're going to find in Delaware 
and Nevada. Um, what is the filing fee in Nevada right now? Uh, Andrew's like $800 or $500. I forget what it is. Well, what they'll do in Nevada is they'll hit you. It's, there's an initial filing fee, and then there's a, a business license and a statement of information that aren't uh, made clear, but those have to be filed within 30 days. So you're looking at least, it's $500 plus in Nevada, but they've had seven straight years of fee increases. So we always joke it's a little hard to keep track of where they currently are. Um, you know, they ran a great marketing campaign. They have great laws, but they've really raised the fees to match that at the end of the day. So Wyoming modeled its LLC laws on top of Nevada. So you get all the same benefits here, including a few extra that we'd argue you don't have there. But the largest difference most people will see between Wyoming and Nevada is simply the increased cost. And then Delaware, Delaware is a haven for large corporations. Uh, they're much more creditor friendly than debtor friendly. They try to be a uh, a little more even in that respect, whereas Wyoming is going to be debtor-friendly, which helps you in case you're sued. So really, Delaware is just, if you're a Fortune 500 company, you don't notice the fees and you want their benefits, but small investors really shouldn't be going to Delaware at the end of the day. You know, the additional element that you need to take into account is people know that Delaware is a corporate haven has been very well-defined for a number of years. Wyoming is not as well-defined or as well-known. That doesn't mean that its laws don't give you the same element of protection, if not even a little bit more. In fact, in Wyoming, if you sue an LLC, you can seal the records so that you can't find out who the members are unless that becomes a relevant aspect of the case. I don't think that's the case in Delaware, and that was something that was recently added to the Wyoming LLC code. I think Wyoming provides for a great deal more privacy than Delaware or Nevada would. Awesome. That makes a lot of sense. Are there any drawbacks if I'm not like a Wyoming resident? What should I be aware of? When I'm setting up a, or, or real, hopefully when I have an attorney setting up a Wyoming LLC, uh, what are the drawbacks that I should be aware of? Or are there any like negatives to not being a resident, but having a Wyoming LLC? I would say there's two drawbacks. The first one is establishing nexus. The second one is the bank account. I'll start with the bank account. Uh, there's any bank can open up an account for a Wyoming LLC. But unfortunately, every banker reads the rules differently. Every bank on top of that. So you could have some issues with the non-state LLC. The first bank tells you no. Let's say Chase tells you no. You go to the Chase down the street and they say, yeah, that's no problem at all. So you might have a couple extra trips at the bank to get it done. It's not that you can't. You just have to persevere. Uh, the other issue then comes down to Nexus. Uh, if you do want the benefit of Wyoming law, you need to take a few steps to show you really are a Wyoming company. It's our opinion a virtual office will generally satisfy that, but some clients rent out a physical desk or they actually make a trip up to Wyoming. That way, if they're ever in front of a judge and the judge goes, are you really a Wyoming company? You can say, look, I've got an office here. I've visited Wyoming. It's a lot more substantial than saying, hey, I formed Wyoming LLC online for $199. So it adds a little bit of cost every year, a couple hundred dollars, not excluding that initial trip. But when you're buying real estate, you've got hundreds of thousands of dollars of assets. At the end of the day, adding 500 a year just is not that much to really solidify the ownership or really show that you're a Wyoming company. Yeah, and I, I'd add a little bit to that. You know, the drawback to Wyoming is that you can't get there from anywhere else. But that's also the benefit as well. So if you wanted to come to Wyoming, let's say that you had a lawsuit against an operating company and you've got a judgment against that operating company and you wanted to pierce through the veil of that LLC and get into the holding company that owns it, you'd have to come to Wyoming to perpetuate that litigation. And in coming to Wyoming, Wyoming has very strict rules on how it is that you can break that corporate veil. It's going to be very difficult to do. 
and you'll litigate it in front of a judge who is very conservative and very in tune to what the rules are, and you will get a ceiling of the record on that. And it's just difficult to get to Wyoming and maintain the suit. So there are additional impediments to creditors coming to the state. Got it. Got it. So I guess to uh, elaborate a little bit more, you can actually, so the way you, you would recommend doing this is you would establish the Wyoming LLC as the holding company. And then let's say that I own a property in the state of uh, North Carolina, in, in Brandon's example, I would own the property through the North Carolina LLC. I would manage the property through the North Carolina LLC, but the North Carolina LLC would be owned by the Wyoming LLC, and I would still have that charging order protection on that property that's owned indirectly through the Wyoming LLC. Yeah, that's correct. I think that's that's a good synopsis. I would throw an additional thing in there, though, is that you know, you've got your operating LLC licensed in North Carolina. They're going to apply North Carolina law. And I also think that if you have a Wyoming LLC that owns local property in North Carolina, they'll probably uh, apply North Carolina law. The question is whether or not they should under the Full Faith and Credit Act. If you had a Wyoming LLC that owned that property, wouldn't it be Wyoming LLC law that would attach and apply? That would be my thought. But, uh, you know, there's not been a case that's tested that yet. And my thought is, you know, why not give it a shot? It might be an additional impediment to the creditors breaking through that LLC and getting to the individual owners. I'll just add to that. You know, generally when you've got someone's injured themselves at a property, you look at a lot of frivolous lawsuits. Um, they're working on a contingent fee basis. So when they see you've done a fair amount of structuring, they don't want to go after you. They want to go after someone who owns all of the properties in their personal name because it's easy to get to. So you start putting in multiple entities across multiple states, and you're just not a juicy target at the end of the day. And so something else that you could do, for example, even if you go, regardless of whether you have the properties held by a Wyoming company or a Carolina company, we'd recommend setting up an additional property management company. You put together a management contract. That company is in charge of maintaining the grounds of the properties, uh, dealing with tenants, obtaining the insurance. So generally, the first company to be sued is that property management company rather than the company that owns the asset. And so they'd have to break through the property management company and then go to the company that owns the asset and then try to work their way up the chain. And most of the time, that's just more work than people want to do unless you really have committed something egregious. Uh, they're going to move on to the next target when you've got that many entities in there. You've separated property management from ownership of the asset. Yeah, you know, and that's exactly right. Attorneys are very good at getting judgments, and they're not so good at collecting them for the most part. And you have a bifurcation of uh, of creditors. Uh, your super creditors are the Internal Revenue Service and banks that you gave a consensual lien to. That's a whole different ballgame. But your non-consensual creditors, people that come in and get a judgment against you, and then as a general unsecured tr creditor, try to come in and attach assets that you have. You know, these sorts of barriers, which you're allowed by law to do, these sorts of barriers will really break that down, make it difficult for them to get through those those entities if not impossible, which they'll recognize in fairly short order and allow you to settle the uh, judgment or whatever it is that you've got, allow you to settle that judgment expeditiously and on, on terms that are acceptable to you. And we define a super creditor as someone who doesn't care if they're right or wrong and they have unlimited funds. So, you know, the IRS and the bank, uh, outside of that, they're dealing with limited funds at the end of the day. So the question, do they really want to pursue you? That makes a lot of sense. So we've been talking a lot about LLCs, but some of our clients opt to not use LLCs at all and instead get some really high dollar value umbrella insurance. What are the pros and cons to that? 
expense, you know, and if you have a catastrophic event, is the umbrella, high dollar umbrella insurance going to cover you for everything that you've got? And then does the insurance actually pay out at the end of the day? Uh, we've seen that as well. Uh, the insurance companies like collecting the premiums. They don't so much like putting the money out there. And then the other issue too is, you know, you hold it individually, you have the umbrella insurance. There's an accident at your property. Uh, the opposing counsel pulls up your name and they can instantly see that you own seven LLCs. You look like a pretty juicy target at that point as well. Got it. That makes sense. Yeah. You know, the LLC filing fee per year is 50 bucks. What's that umbrella insurance going to cost you? Yeah, probably several hundred a month, right? Yeah, you would think for the most part. And, uh, you know, once you umbrella, what are the additional properties? And then they get the information on that and on and on. It's just, you know, just a nightmare of uh, recrimination that follows after that based on the way the most attorneys approach this. And then do they want to pay out? You know, you check one box wrong on that insurance application. Let's say it's a fire and you say that you've got a certain sprinkler system, but really you have another because you weren't the wiser. And now they've got grounds to go ahead and dispute the claim at the end of the day. Got to love insurance companies, right? Well, that's why you have bad faith insurance laws through every state in the United States, and you still can't get around them. (laughs) Jeez. A lot of good insurance companies. There's a lot of bad ones, too, and that's why you have those laws in place. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So we've talked a little bit about holding companies, management companies, property companies. Can you describe the difference between a holding company and a management company, and when is it going to make sense to have both in place? Really, the difference in terms of the state filing, they're going to be identical. Wyoming doesn't ask your business purpose. Most states don't. It's really what does the business do at the end of the day. So the idea on the holding company, uh, one of the benefits of the holding company is you can file what's called a consolidated tax return. So even if you had 100 properties underneath the holding company, you consolidate it into the holding company. You've got one return to file one schedule. You don't have to do it for every entity. Uh, so it can save you accounting fees there. The other idea is you end up with a double corporate veil. Um, so even if they break through the children LLCs, they'd have to get through the parent to go ahead and attack you. Uh, so you get a double corporate veil there as well. That allows you to mix and match the benefits of one state with another. So, for example, Texas and Florida both require you to list the owner. Uh, so if you make the owner a Wyoming LLC, you're listing an anonymous LLC, and it allows you to have privacy in a state that at first glance wouldn't actually allow that. Um, so those are some of the reasons for the holding company. And then the difference really is just day-to-day. The holding company usually won't own assets. It only owns other LLCs. It won't own assets. It won't have employees. It won't sign contracts. It won't do any of the things that will get you sued. Because if the holding company gets sued, you can go after what it owns, and it owns all the other companies. So it's really an inert structure that just sits at the top to protect you. Got it. Got it. We have a lot of clients who sometimes want to use a series LLC. And then so the series LLC, the top one, you know, in theory or whatever, would actually sit as that holding LLC. And then they have child LLCs under it. But then we had some attorneys conflict on whether or not that is actually going to be good from an asset protection standpoint, because not all states recognize the Sears LC. So I just kind of want to get your thoughts on that and and how you view that situation. I think you're exactly right. And it's the same reticence I had. If you're in a state that recognizes Sears LLCs like the state of Wyoming does, you're good because the law is pretty specific on most of it. There's some elements that can be flushed out over time and they will be as people get used to using them, but they're comparatively new. So if I've got a series LLC in Wyoming and I put series underneath the holding LLC uh, and I go out into a separate state and say, hey, you know, this 
this isolates liability from between the series. Is that other state going to buy it? Because you may be in front of a judge who has a criminal justice background that may not understand the series LLC and is swayed by the emotive arguments of, a, of an attorney who represents an individual who's been hurt. So you're kind of back up against the wall on a lot of stuff. So even though you're entitled to full faith and credit under the Constitution for a series LLC, whether or not you get it is really conjectural. So until people get used to using them, until they become much more readily available within the United States, I think for the most part, you should only use the series in the state that allows series LLCs. If you have somebody that's adamant about using series LLCs in one of the states that hasn't formally recognized them yet, what do you tell that person? Well, we tell them that there should be efficacy. There should be full efficacy in using that LLC in that state, but they're taking a risk that the judge or an attorney will not recognize that efficacy and that uh, they're subject to possible liability between the sister or the children organizations underneath that uh, series LLC. Additionally, also the practical concerns of, let's say, you end up needing to register one of those series in that state. Uh, but the state doesn't recognize series. The secretary is not used to seeing them or division of corporation. You can't get a single series registered. You'd have to register the entire entity and they treat them all as one. Or you go into a bank uh, and that banker's never seen a series. Or even we have this where he was in a state that had series, but they listed series differently in that state than we allowed in Wyoming. So we had to get the secretary of state on with the bank. We had to get on with the bank and you have to walk them through Doing those practical concerns, it can be a little bit more laborious to actually get it done at the end of the day. So it should work in theory, um, but you'll hit a fair number of roadblocks along the way. The bankers have been the biggest impediment because they're just not used to seeing them yet. Yep, like, for example, Wyoming, they do not list the series independently on the Secretary of State website. They're instead listed as an amendment on the articles. There's no way to get it on the Secretary of State website client went in in a state where they list them independently. The banker absolutely insisted till the end of days that the series didn't exist because they couldn't be searched independently. Uh, so you end up having to go to a different bank and got it done, but you know, it delayed them a few days, a couple trips to the bank, those sorts of headaches. It's kind of sounding that something that is perceived, at least up front, as a simplification of entity structuring could be pretty costly uh, just in the ongoing maintenance or on the back end whenever there's any issues that arise or, or any lending requirements are in place. Is that what I'm hearing? Oh, that's exactly it. Yeah. You know, like the, you know, the first guys who showed up in the American West and settler sure ended up with a lot of arrows in their backs. And I think it's the same way with series LLCs and domestic asset protection trusts as well. I mean, I think one industry just to jump across real quick, it can work a little bit better for e-commerce, for example, they're not having to register those LLCs anywhere. Uh, every store has its own individual series. Uh, but anytime you end up dealing with another state, uh, you run into those issues. And even on the e-commerce, it wouldn't help you with the jurisdictional issues. Because the issue is you get in front of a judge, like Mark mentioned, they don't have a background in business. Uh, usually they handle criminal cases or family law cases. They see a series. They've never seen it before. They say, hey, this is just all the same entity. And then poof, there goes all of your structuring, all of the perceived benefits. And even if that wouldn't hold up on appeal, you're still stuck backpedaling and you've got to appeal it and go through that additional expense. Got it. Got it. And I just have well, one one question. I know we didn't necessarily discuss this before, before we hopped on the show, but I know you're big on uh, Wyoming asset protection trusts. Why would someone mm-hmm. want to consider using a Wyoming trust? 
Well, the statute itself is uh, very easy to follow. It's uh, very strict in this application, but once you hit the applicable standards, you've got something that Wyoming courts are going to enforce. And we just came up with the new chancery court here in Wyoming that gives you a level of expertise in enforcing those trusts that you're not going to get in a lot of other states. So my feeling is that, you know, we read the laws to say exactly what it is that they say, and it gives the efficacy to the trust. It's a completely good industry here in the United States, and you've got courts that will enforce it. Yeah, essentially, we modeled all of our trust laws on overseas trusts because we realized that our banks, accountants, and attorneys were losing a lot of business overseas. People go to Nevis, Cook Islands, Cayman. So we modeled them. We brought it back onshore. And having lived in the Caribbean, I'd say the largest benefit of a Wyoming trust versus an offshore trust is you have the benefit of U.S. law. Uh, you're not going to have the trustee steal the money. You're not going to have the banks steal the money. And God forbid that ever did happen. It happened in the States. You can go to a U.S. court. Uh, good luck going to Nevis and chasing a banker down. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. I had a number of clients who have lost monies in the in the Caribbean as a result of being unable to chase somebody down who was responsible or to get a judge or a court to even hear the case. And there was one case in particular, some clients of mine used the brokerage out of RBC in, in Canada. And that brokerage account was one single account with RBC, and RBC mixed all their client accounts together under that account. So when they took a haircut on one account, they offset it against all the accounts. And that resulted in my clients losing a substantial sum of money and having no recourse to it. And then I'll jump in real quick, too, and say there's some common misconceptions surrounding trusts. A lot of people think it's simply an estate planning tool, uh, which it is. But one of the things that makes Wyoming unique is you can create a trust for your own benefit. So during your lifetime, you retain control over the assets. You still retain the benefits of the assets. Then when you pass away, you can name who you want to have it. And most other states have asset protection. You have to create the trust, and then the beneficiaries are usually your children, family members, charity, but you lose control at that point. Wyoming allows you to maintain control, be a beneficiary while you're alive, and then when you pass away, you can name whoever you want. Uh, so you get the best of both worlds. So both during your lifetime and after your lifetime, the money's protected. That's one of the things that makes Wyoming unique. And not just for old people. So. I think that's a very good point. You know, a lot of people say, you know, I don't need any asset protection plan or anything until I get older and I'm looking at the end of my life decisions. But, you know, my experience has been the younger you are when you put these things in place and the way in which you observe the formalities between you and get used to it, that's how you do business. That's what protects you going out in life because most people have a tendency to, to um, underestimate the amount of risk that they have until the risk shows up. I hear that one 100%. I know that uh, there's a lot of people out there who would rather uh, take the short-term view and say, let me not pay the fees or expenses or go through the effort to go set things up the right way and instead uh, have to deal with the consequences on the back end. So I uh, just want to jump into, uh, we, we are a real estate uh, accounting and tax podcast, so I do want to jump into a tax-related question. So I wanted to ask you both, what is your favorite tax strategy or the best tax advice that you've ever received? I'll start with a joke, and the best tax advice would be to go get a qualified CPA. You know, I mentioned a few years ago I started the website. At this point, I understand LLCs and trusts very well. Every time I come to Mark with the tax question, I end up being more confused when I leave than when I go in. And it's not because he's not clear. It's just because the taxes are such a mess. But I would say, um, outside of that, Wyoming doesn't have any state taxes, whether it's income tax, intangible tax, excise tax gift tax, uh, go through the list. 
So you can put together a trust to minimize taxes. You could also look at, we don't have corporate income tax. So if you have enough money that you can keep it in the corporation, you're not living off of it, you're reinvesting it. You could have a LLC tax as a corporation or a corporation at the top. Those could minimize your taxes. You know, essentially income shift, move as much money as you can to Wyoming uh, from outside of Wyoming. But other than that, uh, you know, a good CPA is going to pay for himself. That's one thing you shouldn't be shy about. Yeah, but, you know, one of the things that I run across is that you get a great deal of flexibility under Wyoming's uh, Domestic Asset Protection Trust Code or Uniform Trust Code to structure your asset protection trust as either a grantor or a non-grantor trust, and also to make gifts within that trust so that you can allocate income from the trust uh, to individuals of very low tax rates away from individuals of very high tax rates for accumulation purposes. And the other thing that's really interesting, there was a case that came out with the Supreme Court, gosh, I think it was back in May, it's called North Carolina Department of Revenue versus Kaysner. And the interesting aspect of that, which was something that wasn't actually a part of the case, but it, it maintained the efficacy of that trust in terms of jurisdictional purposes outside the state of North Carolina, so that you could really allocate assets in a trust to a domicile that would allow you not to bear state income taxes or even more importantly, state inheritance taxes if it came down to that, so that you could structure your state so as to minimize those taxes, if not eliminate them. So, you know, if you had a non-grantor trust in Wyoming with a substantial number of assets and a beneficiary dies and it's a completely discretionary trust, does that beneficiary have anything have anything in the estate to pay estate taxes against, or are there discretionary allocations made to that beneficiary? If not, then there's no taxes to be paid at the state level. And I think that's going to be a fight coming over the next several years as states seek to buffer their uh, tax revenues to make up for their spending allocations. So the best tax I, I, advice I got is why not put into uh, why not put yourself into a grantor trust as a domestic asset protection trust with a toggle switch and you can toggle back and forth with the results that you need. And I will jump in and say that Kessner decision, which essentially said, you know, you don't have to form the trust in the state in which you live in. You still get the benefits. That was decided unanimously by the Supreme Court. Uh, no one had a dissenting opinion on that. Now, as yeah. I think Mark said, the first one of the first substantial rulings in trust law are 30 or 40 years. They cleared up a lot of stuff. Um, so made it clear you're not bound to the state where you live. So, and that was this year. Um, so rarely would we describe trust law as exciting, uh, but that was a pretty exciting decision. And then I guess one quick thing, I remember this was um, if Mark mentioned, you know, uh, the gifting it out to someone at a lower income tax bracket, but even if you're not dealing with the trust, your children, you know, if your investors have or your uh, listeners have children, there's no reason you can't employ your children through your company, have them lick envelopes, pick up gardening supplies, whatever it is, pay them their allowance essentially through the company. Uh, it allows you to deduct it as an expense at your level, and they'll be paying it at their level, which is most likely substantially less. Uh, so that's one way you can shift income to your children and lower your tax burden while you're at it. It was the interesting case there is that uh, they affirmed what the American College of Trust and Estate Council uh, has come forth and, and supported, or at least believe, I believe they supported it, was that you can pick the jurisdiction's laws that apply to a trust, and uh, those will apply for tax purposes as well. Got it, got it. So it sounds like uh, shifting income to your children is is a great way to shift income from a high-income tax bracket to a lower-income tax bracket. We love that strategy. We often use that with a lot of our clients. 
um, and also that Wyoming has very favorable tax laws as well as asset protection laws. So one last question before we wrap up for today, and that is what was your favorite piece of technology that we're currently using in your business? Well, I'll give that one to Andrew. He takes all the technology stuff. Um, I guess, uh, simplistically, either uh, Calendly or DocuSign, uh, just make it easy. But one thing that we've done, not to plug ourselves, but we've developed a fair amount of customized software because we do have a high volume of clients. And the nice part is it allows us to handle formations quickly. The documents are always correct because the machine drafted them rather than a person. Uh, so I'd say, um, you know, it's the technology that we've designed to make our clients' lives easier, but really it makes our lives easier as well. Uh, fewer mistakes, faster turnaround, and everyone's happy. Yeah, I like the calendar process. I, I'd go with that. I think DocuSign's great because, you know, under most Electronic Signatures Act in the United States, you can sign it online, electronic signature's good, and electronic copy is, is deemed to be an original document. So those are really great. We've got an online client portal where, you know, once you lose the originals, it doesn't hurt because you can go online and print new originals off. And I think that that benefits people a great deal because we've finally come to the determination over the last 50 years that, you know, no matter how important a document is, someone's going to lose it. Uh, yep. Yep. I think we had one client lost his estate planning binder that he took on vacation to Hawaii with him and he left it on the plane on the way to Hawaii. Uh, so, but I'd say, yeah, DocuSign is great. We've probably saved about a thousand trees now at this point as well. So, yeah. We agree. We love Calendly. We love those electronic signature um, applications as well. Um, what would be the best way for our listeners to get in touch with you or learn more about your business? I think go to the website. Yeah, go to the website. We've got wyomingllpattorney.com. I think we've got 120 or 130 pages at this point. We're working on rolling a blog out. Uh, if you do want more direct advice, so either reach out to the info at wyomingllpattorney.com or give us a call. Uh, it'll come into us. I'm always more than happy to speak with clients as a paralegal. I'm a little more limited in the advice I can give. I can speak in generality. I can't give you legal advice. And then if you do ever want time with Mark, we can give you that Calvinly link. You can schedule time with him and he'll certify your strategy. Awesome. Awesome. So we'll drop uh, your website into the show notes below for any of our listeners who do want to learn more about Wyoming LLCs and uh, perhaps get some advice. So I want to thank you both again for taking the time to come on the show today. I think you've cleared a lot of things up for both us and our listeners and uh, really appreciate that. Well, you're very welcome. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, it is our pleasure. Thank you very much. So we are here for the debrief segment of our podcast today with Mark and Andrew Pierce um, regarding Wyoming LLC's trusts and other things Wyoming. So, Brandon, what were your thoughts on what they had to say today? Yeah, I thought it was a really great podcast. Really enjoyed having them on. It's always a lot of fun to get attorneys on to talk about entity structuring and asset protection. I think it's really a piece of the real estate investing puzzle that more light needs to be shed on. Um, so it was really nice to have these guys on. Really enjoyed the conversation about the series LLCs. I think there's a lot of differing opinions out there. We've got clients that are doing a bunch of different things. There, some are using series LLCs, some are not. But uh, you know, these guys—they said you know—it's it, not necessarily that you can't use the series LLCs in, in the state in the 13 states that don't formally recognize them. It just might get costly. And I thought that was a really good tidbit to take away from that conversation. Absolutely. And one of the things that they also said about series LLCs is one of the biggest hurdles is the bank account. And I've had several clients that we've worked with 
who've used Sears LCs and come to me and said that they're having issues setting up bank accounts. And do I know of a bank that will help them set up their Sears LCs? Because the bankers don't understand what it fully is. So I think uh, they did a great job in clearing all of that up. And sometimes, it, like we say, the juice just isn't always worth the squeeze. Right, right. Because in that case, you have to pay your CPA or you have to pay your attorney to jump on the phone and talk to the banker. And, and again, it's just that, that ongoing maintenance, the operation of the series LLC structure, that's where it could potentially get pretty costly is just walking people through the structure. So that was definitely a good discussion. Also really enjoyed the discussion on why Wyoming LLCs. Really, really thought that they laid that out pretty well and uh, has me rethinking my own entity structure at this point. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I love that discussion too. They've really cleared everything up. And just to quickly recap for everybody, basically what it looks like is you have a Wyoming LLC would be your holding company. And then you have subsidiary LLCs that are generally going to be set up in the state in which the property is owned. And then those subsidiary LLCs are all rolled up to the Wyoming LLC. It was really great to hear them clear that up and just understand the real power of the Wyoming laws and, and everything else you could do within the state of Wyoming. Uh, but today we will jump right into our Q&A segment and we do have a question. Yeah. So the question is, if I invest in self-storage assets with a self-directed IRA, is the income produced by the self-storage assets subject to UBIT tax? In the answer to that question is that it is. is um, so What? Yeah, I know a lot of people are shocked to hear that. They always think about, well, wait a second, is when I only be subject to UDFI from debt finance income on real estate investments? And that's just not the case here. It actually says there, you know, right blatantly on the IRS website that rental income from uh, basically real estate that's not from living quarters, to sum it up nicely, is subject to UBTI, unrelated business taxable income. So you basically have to pay. UBIT on basically all the income derived from a self-storage uh, facility or a, something like a senior assisted living facility on all the income above $1,000 because you are exempt from UBIT on the first $1,000 in income, but the rest of it you do have to pay tax on. It's not just the portion that's not attributed to debt financing. And that's both on self-directed IRAs and solo 401ks. So you do have to watch out there. And that's a wrap for today. I want to thank everybody for joining us on today's episode. Remember, you can have your questions answered by going to www.therealestatecpa.com slash podcast with an S. Drop your question in that box and we may just answer it live. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients, and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes and with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.